Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 21 of Chris's on Infinite Earths here at the Chris and Reggie channel. You can find this program hopefully every Wednesday for the next little while over at chrisandreggie.com, chrisandreggie.podbean.com, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and uh, probably a lot of places I don't even know about. Uh, now, today we're going to be discussing a book that eluded me for a very, very long time and is kind of a way to facilitate my sharing of my personal comics collect mandments. So, uh, just my little rules of thumb that I use when I, uh, when I seek out a book that I've been looking for, uh, when I give something white whale status and, uh, pursue it. Um, I'm gonna do my best to make it not sound preachy or condescending to other ways of, uh, collecting, but, uh, you know, we'll get there, uh, and I'll try to be as even-handed as possible, and I'll try to be as interesting, which uh, may be a challenge. Before we get into that, though, I'd like to share a brand new segment of the program. As many of you following along know, we have uh, the Cosmic Treadmill, the flagship of the uh, channel here, has been on hiatus since mid-May. And I figured, hey, you know, we've got this vast archive Maybe I should share clips of it on this show, and maybe it'll help folks traverse the uh, the winding archives that we have over at chrisandreggie.com. Um, and today I want to share one that uh, a clip that made me crack up uh, when we were recording it. Uh, it doesn't happen often, uh, you know. Reggie and I do uh, take turns scripting, and uh, we uh, both try to pitch in on on every script that we do. And still, sometimes in the moment of recording, you're just caught off guard and uh, you kind of get a little bit of the giggles here. And that's a, a clip I wanted to share uh, right now. Back to the past. Just yeah. then, Matthew launches off that makeshift ramp right into the mix and he lands in Charles Barkley's arms. <laughs> hey, Charles! <laughs> I gotta talk to you, man! Nice entrance, kid. What's up? Though Barkley's attendants try to dissuade him, Charles crouches down and listens to young Matthew. What you want, kid? You gotta stop Godzilla! Take this dollar! And then some sleazy guy with a ponytail says, There's a time and place for this, Mr. Barkley. Yeah, when, uh, whenever Godzilla shows up, or whenever that is, right? Yeah. <laughs> Barkley says, I don't have to stop that ugly monster, and I don't want your dollar. You want to give me a dollar? Buy a ticket to the game. Although you'll need uh, 74 more of those silver dollars for the cheap seats. <laughs> but Charles, only you can stop Godzilla because you're Earth's greatest warrior. I mean, after Michael Jordan, but he's all the way in Chicago. Uh, maybe, maybe we shouldn't have said that. Maybe we shouldn't have mentioned that. Yeah. <laughs> Barkley says, hmm, you may have a point there. What's your name, kid? Matt. And the lady goes, we have to leave now, Mr. Barkley. You know what? You're fired. What? You heard me. Go on. Take a hike. Uh, so now Charles, Barkley, and Matthew are speeding along the highway in a convertible. I'm going to assume it's Barkley's convertible, not Matthew's. Probably. Yeah. <laughs> Godzilla lurches in the background, swatting at fighter jets and stomping through a raging fire. Barkley says, okay, what makes you think I could stop Godzilla, even if I wanted to? It's an ancient legend my grandpa told me. All you need is the magic silver dollar, which I got right here. Your grandfather told you no such thing, you little liar. <laughs> Let me see that thing. Hmm. An 1889 Morgan silver dollar in fine condition. You know, people really do underestimate the quantity of expert numismatists playing for the NBA, but a lot of them are really into coins. Yeah. They're really into it. <laughs> Maybe you gotta put it in your mouth or something. <laughs> You don't put strange money in your mouth. You don't know where it's been. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> you know, I, we've been reading this for a little while now, and we knew that it would have an important moral lesson in here somewhere. Right? It's a, this is a good, don't put money in your mouth, kids. It's not. I don't know where it's, it's been. It's not good, yeah. Uh, so Barkley and Matthew pull onto a blacktop basketball court in a pretty dirty-looking section of town. Oh, God. <laughs> Wait, there's a hoop. <laughs> Pull in there, Charles. I want to show you some moves. You want to show me? How tall are you? 4'10", just like a little shotgun. Oh, God. <laughs> Tell you what, I'll play you for that silver dollar. You'll play me? They're 
Isn't Godzilla destroying a city, right? There's always time for a little pickup game, Chris. And that was a clip from Cosmic Treadmill episode 94, Godzilla vs. Barkley from 1993. That one went up on June 10th, 2018. You could find it at chrisandreggie.com, chrisandreggie.podbean.com. Or if you Google Cosmic Treadmill, Godzilla vs. Barkley, I'm sure it'll be one of the first things to come up. Or at least I hope it's one of the first things that come up. Uh, now, I wanted to share that one because, well, it, it made me laugh. And, uh, you know, it, the just the sheer silliness of that issue caught me off guard. And I thought that was a lot of fun. And it's one of those things that, uh, that I uh, think back on and uh, it usually gets me to uh, at least smirk. <laughs> that was a uh, very fun episode to uh, put together. Um, now, let's get into uh, the meat of the uh, episode here, as it were. We're going to be discussing, if uh, the title of the episode hasn't already clued you in, First Issue Special Number 4. Now, this is uh, known to many as the Lady Cop issue. And uh, it's an issue that I'd known about for a very long time, but had never actually set eyes on. And uh, I spent the past week trying to recall where I'd first heard of it. And it brings me back to either Usenet or maybe the Alvaro comic boards or something, uh, probably around 2005 or 2004, 2005, whenever it was that uh, John Byrne and Gail Simone did that all-new Adam series, uh, the Roy- Ryan Choi Adam series, because I think it was the sixth issue of that book um, had Lady Cop appear, and it was her first appearance, as far as I can tell, uh, since this first issue special uh, one-shot. And uh, folks online were just uh, making these lady cop references, and they went over my head. I didn't know what they were talking about. But uh, I was intrigued from the get-go, and I remember searching online to find out what this uh, lady cop was all about. And uh, it just took me a real, real long time to actually get one. Uh, But before we go into my procurement of the Lady Cop issue, I wanted to talk a little bit about what First Issue Special is, in case in case folks uh, aren't aware uh, of the phenomenon that was uh, First Issue Special. Now, from the uh, Bronze Age of DC Comics from Tash and Books, they say, First Issue Special was another showcase in which pilot issues for potential series were tried out. I'm not sure why they needed this book, uh, since, you know, Showcase was uh, already an established uh, name of, of, a, of a tryout series. But uh, the only thing I can, I can consider is that uh, maybe the, uh, the, the new breed of collector, you know, the post-Marvel Age of Comics collector uh, with an eye toward, you know, issue, the first issues of series uh, might have really informed the... Uh, the naming of this series as, you know, first issue special. And uh, I tell you what, growing up when I did in the, uh, you know, late 80s, early 90s, when I started collecting, uh, the first issue was uh, a real big deal to uh, to me. And uh, I'm guessing a lot of folks who are of similar age because, you know, I, I hate to use the, the speculator term, but uh, that definitely did inform a lot of folks' uh, purchasing habits and uh, what books they followed what books they bought um not necessarily what books they read perhaps but uh it did it did fill out their shopping lists and as a concept it it, you know i mean first issue special just doesn't sound like the name of a comic book you know it's it's so strange (laughs) to uh it's just so strange a name um where showcase kind of has a cachet to it First issue special just sounds really, really weird. Um, now, like I said, I did grow up. Uh, you know, my main collecting started probably 1990, 1991, 1992-ish. And, uh, you know, I was taken in with uh, the concept of uh, speculating and, uh, you know, buying first issues with maybe not so much an eye toward reselling them, but just with an eye toward owning something valuable. And... Uh, my speculator career, and I've shared this story before. Uh, like I, but though, like I said earlier, the the archives are vast, and I, I never assume anybody listens to anything that uh, <laughs> we put up. So, I, I guess I could probably repeat this story. Um, apologies if you've already heard this one. 
my speculating career consisted of three issues. But uh, before we get to those three issues, it uh, starts... The the idea of speculating actually starts with another book altogether. Um, it actually begins with ads in uh, the books that I was collecting. Um, around this time, the X-Men were, you know, my comics bread and butter. And, I'd, and so I was, uh, you know... A huge fan of the X-Men books and uh, you know anytime I heard the word mutant you know my ears would perk up because I would assume that it was going to be a new X title or something to something that would concern the uh, the characters that I'd grown so fond of and in a lot of those books uh, ads would run for a company called American Entertainment it was sometimes called Entertainment This Month and I'm looking at an ad right now from Uncanny X-Men number 287, this had an April 1992 cover date, and it's an ad for that introduces the concept of Youngblood. Uh, the blurb reads, Hot new team of mutant heroes created, written, and drawn by Rob Liefeld. Youngblood number one, $2.50. It says it's the origin of the Youngblood and includes two collector's cards. I didn't even consider that this wasn't a Marvel book, you know, because it's it's actually right under an ad for uh, Jim Lee X-Men reprints. So I assumed that this was just going to be, you know, another mutant book, uh, although the price was a bit higher or twice the price of a uh, X-Men book at the time. I thought that, hey, maybe there this is going to be, you know, it's called Young Blood. I thought maybe it was going to be a new take on the new mutants because they had just ended the new mutants to parlay into X-Force. So I figured, hey, maybe this is, or I actually was almost 100% certain that this was going to be a brand new X title. Um, so a buddy of mine and me had uh, planned on, you know, getting in on the ground floor of this new Youngblood book. And we kind of kept track. It was one of the first books that we actually kind of like tracked when it was going to come out. Uh, and by tracked, I mean, we went to the comic store every single day and asked, when is it coming out? Uh, we, the day finally would come and we trudged all the way up to the comic shop. Uh, it was probably a good, maybe two, two and a half mile walk. Uh, we'd walk along the, uh, the train tracks to get into, uh, into Sayville. And we stopped at the comic shop and we knew the price was two fifty, but when we got there, the book was already bagged, boarded and put on the wall. And it had a $5 price tag. I mean, this this was release day. This was the day that it hit shelves. It actually bypassed the shelves and went right on the wall for twice cover price. And uh, I didn't have the money to spend on it. Uh, uh, the thing of it is, uh, my friend didn't either, but he, he darn sure wanted the book. So we had to walk all the way back to his house. So he could collect, you know, uh, as many coins that were in the ashtray or whatever. And then we trudged all the way back up to the uh, shop. And I remember asking the guy, or one of us asked the guy, why the book was uh, upcharged so much on release day. And uh, this is a quote that I've made time and time again. And I apologize if you're hearing it for the 99th time. But the shop owner looked at us and said, it's Rob Leefield, man. So uh, that's why it was worth twice the cover price. And <laughs> my buddy, you know, plunked down his five and change on the counter, and the shop owner went into a box under the counter and flopped down an unbagged, unboarded copy of Young Blood Number One. Uh, my buddy asked, you know, he wanted the one on the wall because it came with a bag and board, and uh, he said, "Nope, that one's just for show." <laughs> Oh, yeah, he had to get the unbagged, unboarded copy of Youngblood, and he paid $5 for it, uh, which I think if you had $5 right now, you could probably buy at least 50 copies of that comic these days. I don't know. But uh, that event kind of instilled in me that there is a value in first issues, uh, besides the obvious value of older first issues. Uh, this was a brand new book with that that was already a hundred percent over the cover price. So you kind of get this panic inside you that that these comics are going to be worth something before they even have an opportunity to sell out. Um, I mean, today these days we hear about books selling out 
on release day, and then you go to the comic shop and there's 400 copies of the book on the wall because they count shipped instead of sold. But uh, back then, we didn't know the difference. You know, we didn't have any idea of the inner workings, and we just knew that there was a uh, there was an artificial scarcity, uh, especially with you know this young blood book. So moving forward, anytime a new number one would be announced or we'd get hyped about, uh, we it was always like, okay, well we got to get that. You know, we got to get that before it sells out, and if. If, you know, God forbid we found it at cover price, we felt like we were getting a bargain because we were taught this awful lesson by the Rob Leefield book. And the three books that I had, quote-unquote, speculated on, um, it, all, it all started with uh, Spawn Number 1, which it was a book that I had uh, convinced myself to ignore. Uh, I, I've got, like, this really odd sense of... I, I don't know if it's justice or... <laughs> <laughs> or, uh, or just uh, head up my own ass-ishness. I don't know. But uh, I had talked myself into not caring about the Spawn book because I was just so annoyed that I couldn't afford any of the Todd McFarlane Spider-Man books because those just skyrocketed in value. I mean, just a random Todd issue of Amazing Spider-Man, it was, it was in the double digits. You know, you were paying 10 bucks for it, at least. So it was, uh, I think I kind of just talked myself out of being interested in that book, but we went to the comic shop on the day that Spawn came out, and uh, didn't even realize that it was Spawn Day, but we were in there, and the shop I went to was like the size of a, a large janitorial closet, and there was a man in there, and it's a man that uh, I, I probably would say he was an older guy, but uh, I'm probably just around his age right now, so I will not say that. Uh, and he wanted to buy every single issue of Spawn Number 1 that the comic shop had. And the shop owner was trying to cut a deal because he didn't want to sell every single issue to this one dude. Um, but, uh, I, I think he had, I think he had, he had over 50 copies. And, uh, I think they made an agreement to buy, that where the guy would be able to buy like 25 of them, which, I mean, that's still, he's dropping $75 on one comic, you know, on one Issue, I should say, uh, but as this, uh, you know, as this big summit, this power powwow was going on with how many <laughs> copies of Spawn can he buy? Me and my buddy each grabbed a copy because it's like, okay, we can't miss this. If if this dude's gonna get every single copy, we gotta get, we gotta at least get one of them. And uh, so we, you know, we both bought a copy of Spawn that didn't have any kind of interest in the character. I thought it looked beautiful, but uh, that was basically. Just as a uh, self-preservation, I guess. We just didn't want to regret it. Um, and I mean, Spawn number one, it's one of the harder image number ones to come across, but uh, it's not its not unusual to see it at cover price or below. So, I mean, that, was a, that, that investment didn't really work out for me. Another book was Justice Society of America number one. This is uh, the quote-unquote ongoing. <laughs> that only went a couple issues longer than the miniseries that preceded it. But uh, that was a, a big deal to us, or a big deal to me, because, you know, as it was a quote-unquote, you know, golden age-themed book, and it was a number one, and boy, I, I mean, that one, that, that's, that's very common to trip over in the 25-cent bins now. Uh, so that one didn't work out for me either. Uh, <laughs> and uh, the third one was uh, RoboCop versus Terminator, number one. And this one actually made me feel dirty. Because uh, I didn't have any, this was a Dark Horse book, and I didn't, I didn't own any Dark Horse books, so it was like I was adding a whole new line item to my long box, or my short box, or whatever I had at the time, um, and I just didn't know what to do with it, you know, I, I didn't have any interest in reading it, uh, we did cover it on the show uh, a couple years back, but I didn't have any interest in reading it when I was 12, and it just felt wrong. You know, it felt wrong enough to where that was the last time that I had uh, indulged in the speculator mindset because I realized that, you know, I, I, I never have an eye towards selling anything. I, I've got so much stuff now that, that I, I could sell, but I, I just can't wrap my head around doing so. Um, and, and we're going to talk about some of the reasons why uh, as we continue along with the, uh, with the story here. But that is what ended... 
my career as a teenage speculator. <laughs> uh, and n- none of those books really uh, bore any fruit uh, insofar as making me a wealthy man. Um, you know, I'm currently in grad school, and none of these books are responsible for putting me through college. So there's that. So there's a, a rumor debunked or, or whatever you want to call it. So I said all of that so I can say this. Uh, the concept of the first issue, uh, it was instilled in me early that that was very important. And that's not unusual for comic book fans, uh, especially newer fans, because, I mean, we're getting new number ones all the time. And they're basically the only things any, any of the big two uh, even promote anymore is the number ones. But uh, the idea that there was a book, a, a volume of simply put, you know, first issues... It kind of resonated with me, and when I discovered it, anyway. And I, I don't know if that was just due to my predisposition toward first issues, or just the vast weirdness of a book called that. Uh, either way, I, I don't want to repeat myself any any more than I already have. And it's not to say that I won't again, but uh, <laughs> we'll do our best to uh, to keep trudging forward here. Uh, now, the book we're discussing today is first issue special number four. Uh, that's the lady cop issue, of course. And I let it be known pretty early on that I wanted to do this one on the blog. Um, and you know, folks would send me links to buy the book, or scans, links to scans of the book, so I could actually read it and, uh, cover it on the blog. But that's not the way I, uh, I do things. And, uh, this is what's gonna parlay us into the, uh, the collect mandments, the curmudgeonly Chris's collect mandments here. Um... I don't shop on eBay for comics. I don't shop online for comics. I don't think that there's any kind of a... I don't find that fun. I don't find that satisfying. And before we get too deep, uh, I I do want to, you know, preface here by saying that I do come at this from a position of sort of uh, a privileged position where I, I, I live in, you know, outside of Phoenix, Arizona, where we have just so many great... Uh, comic shops and so many great uh, little haunts and holes in the wall where they sell cheap comics. So my ability to actually go into the wild and find things it might be better than someone else's. You know, I have a lot more potential of finding things just by stumbling past it than a lot of folks might. Uh, if you live in a small town or in the Midwest or you know a different country, even it might not be as accessible. The uh, you know discount bins and stuff like that. I I do share a lot of my finds in the bins, and uh, and folks are you know they, they they don't know what to make of them because they they just don't see that kind of a kind of action where they're uh, where they're living. So I do come from a position of you know comics privilege, I guess, because there are just a lot of comics here. I'm also a a grown-up with very, very little in the way of responsibility. So I don't have kids. Um, I could decide one morning that, hey, I'm gonna find, I'm gonna find the lady cop issue today, and I can put a couple hundred miles on a car, and uh, pop into as many record stores, comic stores, used bookstores as I want, and uh, really not even think twice about it. So everything I'm about to say, please take it into, take into consideration that I, I am coming at you with. The ability to hunt, you know, um, the hunt isn't for everybody. Uh, there are some days the hunt isn't even for me, but it is part of the collector's journey for me, and uh, it is the the only way that I'll ever buy comics. Um, I, I just don't see any kind of pleasure in clicking buy it now, you know. I, and I understand that that might be the only way a lot of folks can do it. Uh, it might be the only possibility for you to find certain comics, but uh, that's not something that I'll ever do because it just—I I don't want to say there's no sport to it because there, there's really no sport in going to a store and and you know kneeling in front of a quarter box. But uh, it's really the only the only way I'll ever do it. And folks were sending me the links to where I could buy this issue of Lady Cop, and I mean it's not an expensive issue. I I, I saw it for a buck. At uh, one of the one of the play, my comic shop maybe or one of my, maybe mile high, but as easy as it would have been for me to click buy it now and then wait a few days and have it show up at my door, I just wasn't gonna do it. You know, I, if I found it in the wild for ten dollars, it would have been more satisfying to me to for me to find it than actually get it at a tenth of the price online. 
And that's just me. I am a very strange fellow. Uh, but the collecting part, the hunt, is a uh, is a big part of the uh, of the hobby for me. And when you're looking for a book as odd as first issue special, especially just one issue of first issue special to complete your collection, you kind of there's really no way to compare the feeling you get. Well, if you're going through dozens of fifty cent bins, and uh, you go through you go through most of them and there's not a sign of anything even from the era that the book came out and then all of a sudden you start seeing books that are reminiscent you know you'll see a different issue of first issue special or you'll see something else from 1975 you know and you think you know it it might be in here you know the, the book that i've been looking for for a decade might actually be in this box and you know the you know the heart gets to racing and and it's just a lot of fun for me to, uh, where the near misses are almost as satisfying as finding it because you, you just get that, that you just get amped up about finding the book. And, and I realize how silly it sounds to get so excited about friggin' Lady Cop, but, uh, it was just, uh, the white whale for me. And every time I stopped by any place that had, a, a cheapo bin or, or even just regular back issue bins Because I couldn't even find this one in regular back issue bins So anytime I was in the vicinity of comics of any sort I would be digging through uh, whatever boxes they had In hopes that Lady Cop was going to be among those books And like I said, you know, you get into the rhythm where you you start seeing You know, you'll see you'll see the, you know, the first issue special with the green team on it You know, or Metamorpho And and you feel like, okay, we're getting warm, we're getting warmer, and eventually you know it'll show up. And uh, it took a very, very long time, but it finally did. Uh, and it was in a place that I search. I searched this place probably hundreds of times uh, before it showed up. But uh, that's just another part of the how wonderful... The Phoenix area is for back issues because you never know what you're gonna get. Uh, there's re- they restock all the time. Every place restocks all the time. Uh, I don't know if it's the climate just being really uh, good to have comics in, or if it's just the perfect blend of uh, of retail and uh, passion. I, I don't know. Um, but I, you know, I finally did find first issue special number four featuring Lady Cop and. I held on to it for a little while. I didn't uh, review it right away because this one was one that I had built up in my head and I had built up on all my social medias as, you know, the one that I wanted. Uh, So I saved it for a milestone blog post and I think it was either the 700th or the 800th uh, daily blog post at Chris's on Infinitarist that uh, Lady Cop was featured in. But before we get into that, just a, a few more of my, you know, rules of thumb here. Uh, I, I was recently on my buddy Dave's uh, program, The Selling Out Show, and we talked about uh, things in the fandom, um, things, uh, just some some collecting rules. Uh, uh, and, and, you know, the word rule kind of connotes that uh, I, I'm imposing <laughs> something on you, where I don't, I don't even think the word rule means anything uh, insofar as an external... Uh, Agitation or uh, uh, Controlling Antecedent or whatever But uh, you know there are laws There are regulations and policies But rules I think are an internal thing You know that's something that you impose on yourself Uh, You could have a dissonance Between you know the rules for you And the rules for other people You know I, I don't I wouldn't ever tell people Not to shop online You know it's not something I would do But it's really none of my business What anybody else does um, and I mean that that can go for really important things in the world or silly stuff like comic books. Um, you know, like I mentioned earlier, there is something there. There is a collector's journey. You know, I think that I think that our collection should really say something about uh, uh, you know just the way we look at the hobby or any hobby. Um, and one of the things I discussed on Selling Out Show was. Uh, folks taking pictures of their uh, bookshelves, and uh, I-, I love looking at bookshelves. Bookshelves are one of my favorite things to look at. Um, but you start to see these bookshelves, and it's all the newest versions of the newest books. 
you know, and and there is there is a real it looks really nice. It looks really nice, but it also looks very sterile. It doesn't look like that that collection, that library has a story to it. Um, it just looks like, and this is the, what I said on that show was, on the Selling Out show, I said, it looks like somebody spent an afternoon on, on Amazon with their tax return. And, uh, I, I really just can't shake that feeling that, uh, there's an artificial feeling to it. There's no journey to it. Um, and, and I have long complained about how... You know, Marvel and DC would change their trade dresses in like the midst of putting out a collection or putting out a series, and it would annoy me to no end that I, you know my Starman collection is going to look different because with the sixth volume they changed the way they did the trade dress, and uh, and you know look at Marvel's Essentials they've had like four or five different versions some of them the print was upside down I mean they they really they really ran the uh, the gamut of uh, trade dresses. And while, in a way, that's really annoying, at the same time, I look at a library with varying trade dresses, an evolution of trade dresses, and I see it as having a story. You know, you could place yourself where you were when you bought a certain book. It wasn't clicking buy it now on Amazon or eBay. You were actually somewhere. You actually were out in the world uh, buying, buying the book you wanted to buy. Uh, I mean, this is so silly because it is so minor <laughs> in the grand scheme of things, but you are listening to a comic book podcast hosted by a rambling idiot, so what are you going to do? Uh, I just, uh, I feel like there should be a story to to the collections, and uh, that is just me. I, I really, like I said, I wouldn't impose that on anybody. I wouldn't tell anybody to, to follow, you know, Chris's rules of thumb, but... Uh, it's just something that if I see a if I see like a ramshackle bookshelf full of you know different different trade dresses, I'm much more engaged than I would be where I look at a shelf that's you know full of Marvel omnibuses, where I, I could go to Barnes and Noble right now and take that picture. You know, I, I just uh, I feel like there needs to be a story. One more thing about selling things online, uh, and I promise we'll move along right after this. Um, I've seen a lot of uh, fans exploit scarcity, uh, especially lately with the Walmart books, the uh, Walmart DC Giants. I see a lot of people exploiting the fact that folks can't follow along if their stores or their region of stores doesn't carry the books, and uh, that really bothers me. Um, I think that if, uh, if you buy more than two or three copies of the same issue... There should be like an uh, like a sort of a tax imposed on you, kind of like if you get caught with a certain amount of drugs, you're you know you get hit with the intent to distribute or intent to sell. I think that if you buy the same copy, or if you buy like five or more copies of the same issue, you should be uh, you should be charged some sort of a tax because it's a uh, you're just exploiting people at that point. And uh, this uh, fandom is a. Uh, it, it feels like it's shrinking every day, and I don't think that we need to expedite that process in trying to, you know, trying to play off of uh, the scarcity of certain books, uh, especially certain brand new books. I've, I've seen people sell these Walmart books for 20 bucks each, and uh, that, that, just, that just grosses me out. I think that that's, uh, that's just not cool. That's just not cool to do. So I've taken up like the past half hour of your day to uh, tell you that I don't like shopping online. <laughs> but that doesn't really tell you why I waited so long to cover this book. Um, my blog, as does my collecting, that has some rules I've imposed on myself. And among those rules, uh, chief among those rules, is that I only review from physical copies. I, uh... There's probably thirty to 40,000 images on Chris's on InfiniteEarth.com right now that uh, they've all come from, you know, my cell phone camera. I've taken pictures of physical copies that I've owned, and it's uh, all single issues. Uh, we do not call them floppies. Uh, floppies is a dismissive and disrespectful term. I hate it. Um, <laughs> that's one of the rules I wish I could impose, but uh, I am not a fan of that term in the slightest. So for you ever chatting me up about comics, please, single issues, not floppies, because, ugh. Um, another rule that I have, and this is uh, not so hard or fast, is that 
when I review a book, especially one that I've been you know seeking out, I don't read it ahead of time. Um, my my preferred my preferred media for comics or format for comics is the single issue. So uh, a lot of times, if there's a story that I really want to check out, even if I have it in trade, I will not read it until I have the physical copy. Um, Lady Cop, I I could have read it a million times online, and I, I chose not to. I wanted to read it for the first time uh, as I was holding it in my hands. Um, uh, even even to this day, uh, things like Doomsday Clock, uh, I, I get my books delivered, and I wait until I have Doomsday Clock on my hand because it's a book that I want to read uh, physically. And uh, there's even uh, a book that I've been searching for for a long time, which won't be a cheap book, but uh, New Teen Titans number 2, The First Appearance of Deathstroke, I've still yet to ever read it. I've never read that issue. Um, I've got it in trade a few times over, but I will never read it until <laughs> I have the physical copy in my hands. Um, so... After all of that, uh, and uh, I feel like I'm apologizing for this segment going too long almost every week now, but uh, here we are again. Uh, I'm going to send it over to the horns, and then we will finally take a look at Lady Cap. First issue special number four, July 1975, cover date. This is Lady Cop in Poisoned Love, written by Robert Kaniga, penciled by John Rosenberger, inked by Vince Coletta at a cover price of 25 cents. Story opens with a young lady hiding under a bed while a man in Jolly Roger cowboy boots murders her roommates. Before making his exit, he leaves an Ace of Spades playing card behind. The police arrive on the scene, and our survivor, Liza Warner, gives them the lowdown on what just went down. She tells them about what she was able to see, including and especially those Jolly Roger boots. Now, this leads another officer to inform her that she has the camera eye of a born police officer. Well, she didn't take much convincing, because she immediately enrolls in the police academy. And she appears to be a natural, not only for her camera eye, but she's also a crack shot and has a heck of a judo throw. Time passes, and we rejoin Liza at commencement. Before she and the rest of the cadets can be properly graduated... A classmate who flunked out crashes the party with, get this, a live grenade. Our lady is able to intercept the explosive, and she tosses it into a nearby garbage can before it goes boom. I'm really not sure how much protection a garbage can might give, because, you know, this is a live grenade, but I don't know, we'll allow it. Now, with our backstory behind us, we can now move into the present. Lady Cop is on the roof of an inner-city building trying to get a creeper to back off from a young lady he's been hassling. She manages to get him to desist by informing him that that girl's underage. So, uh, I guess roughing up a legal woman is a-okay. Or maybe just not as bad, I don't know. Anyway, the young lady leaves, just as another hoodlum arrives. They figure if they can't have that underage girl, Lady Cop might have to do. Well, she beats them both up pretty quickly, and without even messing up her hair. Uh, She arrests them, and leads them into a nearby police cruiser. The entire time, they're threatening to come back and even the score, which uh, tells me they were probably never read their Miranda rights. I I figure those are some of the things that could probably, you know, be held against them uh, in a court of law. Now, with a job well done, Lady Cop continues along her beat. She comes to an ice cream vendor and sees that one of the neighborhood kids can't afford even a single scoop of the stuff. She goes ahead and buys the Titan ice cream with all the trimmings. And uh, when I hear all the trimmings, I'm picturing like relish and onions, and I kind of hope that isn't the case here. With that injustice righted, Lady Cop once more continues on her beat. She is warned by a neighborhood woman that the men she had just put away are quite dangerous. Go figure. Speaking of dangerous, Lady Cop is being watched by a chain-wielding buffoon hanging out on another roof. A lot of people hanging out on roofs in this neighborhood. Uh, She continues and comes across that underage girl from before who is now using a payphone. She overhears that the girl just found out that her boyfriend has VD. Hmm. Gotta say, I wasn't expecting that the first time through. Uh, Upon seeing Lady Cop, underage what's-her-face rushes away. Now, before Lady Cop could give chase, she witnesses a bodega getting robbed by a knife-wielding lunatic. The robber attempts to flee and even stabs the grocer in order to break his grip. 
Liza manages to deflect the stab attempt and throws the no-goodnik into a lamppost, which knocks him right out. Turning her attention to the grocer, she deduces that he has stopped breathing, and so we get a little mouth-to-mouth action. Gotta say, they're checking off a whole lot of boxes here, ain't they? She manages to save his life, and he's hauled off into an ambulance for observation. She finishes out her day with visions of VD Girl dancing in her head. After her shift, we meet Liza's boyfriend, Hal. According to her fellow officers, this is where the cop becomes a lady. Well, go figure. Now Hal takes her to the beach, all, while, all the while complaining that she's a police officer. Huh. He even goes as far as to refer to her as a working man, so uh, he's kind of a jerk. The thing is, she might just leave the force, if only she could track down old Jolly Roger Boots and avenge her fallen roommates. Three days later, we're back on the beat and Lady Cop has finally tracked down VD Girl, who is standing at the docks all melancholy-like. We get the after-school special take on venereal disease, and Lady Cop really presses the girl to find to, to go get checked out. The girl, however, is too scared because she doesn't want her father to find out. Lady Cop, uh, she insists they go tell her father, who, uh, it just so happens, works on those very same docks. Now, here's where it gets uh, weirder. Nina, who is the VD girl, tells her pop what went down, and he's pretty upset. He reels back and then punches Lady Cop, who in the very next panel looks no worse for wear. I mean, still not even a hair out of place. Uh, (laughs) The wallop knocked her hat off, but her hair's fine. Uh, This dude doesn't get arrested for assaulting an officer. He uh, does the whole uh, mea culpa thing a bunch of times, which uh, I suppose is uh, Latin enough. As Nina and her pops walk off, Lady Cop is taken unawares by that chain-wielding dope from earlier. He somehow wraps her wrist with the chain without breaking it. The wrist, that is. And then they both wind up falling off the dock into the drink. Now, if uh, you're ever going to accost a police officer down by the docks, you might want to make sure you know how to swim, right? Well, this fella never got that memo, and so Lady Cop is now tasked with saving his worthless life. And then the issue ends, with Lady Cop asking herself if she'll ever find the killer in boots. Spoiler alert, no, no, she will not. Now, going back to the first time I read this, uh, it really wasn't what I expected. All I knew about this going in was that Liza's roommates were murdered, uh, so I kind of just assumed this was going to be, you know, 20 pages of revenge-fueled melodrama. And I was also expecting to be greatly disappointed <laughs> by that fact. Uh, thankfully, that wasn't the case at all. Uh, the killer in boots was just a motivational measure for Liza joining the force. And I was clearly being used for a long-term payoff if only Lady Cop ever became its own ongoing series. Uh, the weird thing about this issue, uh, because if you're, if you're familiar with First Issue Special, there's generally speaking a text page included that gives you the story behind the story. So instead of a letters page, they have this page of text that gives you the motivation for the story, or maybe a little bit of a pitch for the story, where it might go if it were picked up. And we don't get that here. Also, I was kind of expecting a little note, because a lot of these uh, first issue specials have like little editorial notes saying, like, if you want more such and such, please write to such and such address, and we don't get any of that either. So uh, I don't know if they assumed that Lady Cop would just be an instant hit and people wouldn't have to be told to write in, or if they just <laughs> didn't care. I don't know. Um, now, what I wasn't expecting from this issue was uh, relevancy, if that's the word we're looking for. Um <laughs> I mean, we're looking for a co- at a comic here from the mid-1970s, and uh, I wasn't expecting to uh, to learn about venereal disease. Um, I guess when you put a book with a lady cop on the cover, you really don't expect kids to be all that jazzed about picking it up, so maybe they were aiming for an older audience or a more quote-unquote mature audience? I, I don't know. Um, <laughs> we should probably talk about Liza's beat for a little bit here. I mean, poor Lady Cop here has been assigned to the most dangerous block on the planet, right? I mean, we need to, we need to like cordon this whole neighborhood off and give it its own Green Lantern. It's or maybe maybe several Green Lanterns because you can't walk five feet without somebody swinging a weapon at you. I mean, Liza doesn't even look distressed by any of this, so that tells me that this is just a daily thing for her. She's dodging chains, knives, rapists, VD. This is just every single day for poor Liza Warner. Uh, 
Um, <laughs> the art for this issue was pretty good. Uh, I'm, I wasn't really familiar with uh, Rosenberger, but uh, after a little bit of research, I found that he did come from romance comics, which probably made him a good fit for this uh, street-level book. Um, no, my only quibble with the art is that, uh, you know, the, the VD girl's father punches Lady Cop in the face. It has a very weird flow to it, but at the same, I mean, it's just, it's just, just a weird scene to begin with. Um, you know, I'm kind of surprised that Lady Cop hasn't really made much of a resurgence in the years that have passed here. Uh, seems like she'd be kind of a natural fit. Um, you know, when DCYOU happened and they were... They, you know, putting out, like, that Prez book and the Bizarro book. Uh, I think we had a, a Batmite book. It wouldn't have surprised me one bit to have a Lady Cop uh, miniseries, you know, or ongoing series that would be canceled in three or four issues uh, <laughs> during those days. Um, Robert Kaniga. If only his name rhymed with Zany. Uh, he's uh, he's just as out there as uh, Bob Haney in a way here, uh, but doesn't seem to get as much of the... Uh, as much of the reputation for uh, being just so out there as this is just such a weird book to even pitch. Um, I, I even I've read it several times at this point. I've written about it. I'm talking about it now, and I still it still feels like something that shouldn't exist uh, or something that never existed and is part of a fever dream. I don't know, but uh, you know, for novelty's sake, I, I wholeheartedly recommend this. Um, grab it if you come across it. Uh, you know, I, I just went on a rant about ordering things online. If, if you're interested in this book, order it online. Get it. <laughs> it won't set you back more than a couple bucks. And it's just such a weird thing to have in your collection. And uh, it might actually turn you on to uh, the rest of the first issue special run, which, while very silly and very uneven, it's also very, very special. Um, you know, pardon the pun. Uh, you know, you have your first appearance of Warlord. Warlord is probably the one... From first issue special that uh, that folks remember most fondly, or just remember, period. Uh, yeah, the Dingbats at Danger Street, uh, the Green Team, there's Metamorpho, Dr. Fate has a, an issue. It only ran 13 issues. Um, there was supposed to be a 14th issue featuring uh, Green, Green Arrow and Black Canary, uh, but the book got cancelled, and that story wound up being used in uh, Green Lantern, Green Arrow number 100. Uh, all of these have been reviewed at Chris's Unifineris. There's actually a page uh, called First Chrisu Special. So if uh, if you want to check out all the weirdness from uh, from First Issue Special, you could do so right there. All right, before closing out, let's uh, let's hit up a hot take here. And uh, this week we're going to be taking a look at one of my posts from uh, DC in the '80s. It's a uh, Usenet fandom post, so we are going back to the prehistoric internet. Um, last week I discussed, uh, some of my working relationships with, uh, Justin over at DC in the 80s, and, uh, after, after, uh, releasing the episode, uh, we'd actually touch base again. We had a very nice conversation, um, over the weekend. So, uh, you never know what might come of that. Uh, there might be more Usenet fandom in the offing. Uh, don't want to make any promises, don't want to write any checks that, uh, my brain can't cash at the moment, but, uh, in honor of that, I wanted to, uh, take a look at... One of the Usenet fandom pieces I put together back in the day. Uh, it all kind of was born out of the idea of wanting to know what people's initial thoughts about Crisis on Infinite Earth was. Uh, that's one of the big comparisons to the New 52 uh, that I kind of felt the uh, the pains of. And I was just very interested in knowing what uh, fans back in the mid-80s thought about losing their continuity or just the changes to their continuity. And uh, the fact that Google has uh, archived a lot of the Usenet uh, archives or forum posts or whatever makes it, uh, makes it accessible. We could actually go back in time and uh, find out what people were thinking as, it was com- as it was, everything was coming down the pike. Uh, we're going to look at a post today called Ramblings Long and Vague by a Usenetter named JF. And it was dated February 24th, 1985. So... Yes, there was a prehistoric internet uh, sort of a thing back then. He starts with, Mostly, I agree with what has been said about Crisis, although I can't see how DC could reconcile down to one world. 
I agree they will make a catch-all world where all the heroes and villains to keep will be kept, as well as the DC staff from Earth Prime the, and the readers of the net. The big hero who bites it will be the Flash, I would guess. I would like to keep Superman and Batman, although I know that I wouldn't shed any tears if Wonder Woman went poof. All in all, I don't read too many DCs, although I do buy more than I read sometimes. My general idea is that they aren't that good overall, for a variety of reasons. I do approve of the new Green Lantern, but I wish they'd do something with Hal. Make him a rebellious lantern, but why spend so much time on him each issue when I want to see Stewart learn about the ring? I think there must be something in store for Hal. Hopefully it'll involve the demise of Carol Ferris. I agree with Green Arrow on this one. She's kind of a real B-word sometimes, and Hal is at his best when challenged with overwhelming things. If Stuart is killed and Hal feels that he must pick up the ring, this is what I was born to be, a Green Lantern, that would be very sad indeed. I will be quite disappointed, but I think it could happen. The Flash. Sigh. Wasn't he too good once? How long is this entire run of Zoom, even again, slash death scene, slash JLA trial, slash jury trial gone on? Only about 12 issues too long. Has anyone figured out if issue 350, the one that is constantly referred to in Crisis, coincides with what, that, what issue of Crisis? Apparently, that was the issue where Flash is resolved for good, I suppose. I, too, am of the old school who remembers Flash when he was something. His only power was his speed, but he used it so well. Pick up an older issue of The Flash, and then one now, but try not to throw the recent one down in disgust. After all, you did pay for it. If he dies now, I think it would be a mercy killing. Back in showcase number four, he marked off such a new beginning. I, for one, was put off by all the reprints in Flash and remembrances lately, but I concluded that they were, doing, they were DC's way of telling Flash goodbye, doing all his history before he goes. I believe he deserves at least that. Whoever said on the net that the kid with the wings in Teen Titans should be in Young Romance was right. And yes, it does seem that everyone and their grandma in New York is really some superpowered baddie these days, doesn't it? I liked issue 50, The Wedding, just because it was a good, quiet wedding. Remember when Reed and Sue got hitched? This thing with two comics running at the same time, but not happening at the same time, has really got me screwed up. When did slash will the Titans fight and get trashed by Trigon? A year into the future? Buy out and out, real time, or 12 issues. If DC wants to run the two comics like Batman and Detective, that's okay. Although it will show how money-hungry they are, but trying to tie them together over the course of time just ain't cutting it. There is still some potential in Titans to be good, but they could just as easily lose it, I feel. And the two comic plot overlaps aren't terribly helpful. Alrighty, let's try to parse that word salad here a little bit. Um, let's start with his... Uh, his comments on Green Lantern. As Crisis began, John, Stew John Stewart was growing into his role as a Green Lantern. Got issue 188. Uh, John actually outs himself in that issue. He removes his mask and goes public. Or he's outed by uh, what's-her-face. Uh, JF, our, our usenutter here, does ask for Hal to turn rebel. Uh, well... Hal doesn't exactly do that, but uh, we do find ourselves with a Rebel Lantern because Steve Englehart does bring Guy Gardner back, and that's Green Lantern 196. Uh, it may be argued that this book was in the midst of an identity crisis around this point, because, uh, you know, following Crisis, it was retitled Green Lantern Corps, and we've talked about this before. It featured several Earthbound lanterns from all over the uh, cosmos, rather than just Hal or John, though the focus was generally on them. Um, it's somewhat commonly known that Hal Jordan is a notable exception from Crisis. He does not show up in a single panel in the Maxi series. Uh, further into the word salad, uh, our man talks about the Flash. Now, I can't find anything to substantiate this. However, it, it does appear from my looking at Usenet here that everyone figured out that the Flash would be dying during that series. Uh, I'll probably have to do a little bit more digging just to see if, uh, how how much we knew about you know a significant big hero death happening in the uh, in crisis now flash's own series continued well into the crisis before ending with issue 350 and that one arrived in shops the very same month as crisis on infinite earth number 7 which uh, was a significant issue in and of itself in the lead up to the flash finale barry allen was facing jail time for the murder of zoom uh, 
this was quite an overlong story arc. Uh, even uh, our man JF here says it. Uh, DC Comics actually released it as a uh, showcase presents, uh, not 592 pages in uh, beautiful black and white, hit uh, shelves in 2011. Now, uh, The Trial of the Flash is one of those things that uh, Reggie and I have been discussing about maybe doing as a cosmic treadmill or maybe a weird comics history because it is a behemoth. <laughs> very, very long story. Now, the uh, if we move past the crisis chatter here... Uh, J.F. mentions a kid with wings in the uh, Teen Titans book, and I'm guessing he's talking about Asriel, and uh, not the Asriel from, uh, you know, Nightfall, Night's Quest, Night's End. This is actually an angel-y looking fellow. He uh, first made his presence felt during the first year of the Baxter series in New Teen Titans. He abducted a sort of kind of team member, Lilith Clay. The pair fall in love, uh, though their romance is short-lived. Lilith leaves Asriel behind when she goes in search for parents. Uh, Asriel himself winds up falling in with the Brother Blood cult. Uh, one must wonder if the two were paired as a play on Lilith and Azizel. Uh, maybe, who knows. Uh, that wedding issue, Tales of the Teen Titans number 50, featured the nuptials of Donna Troy and Terry Long. It was a very fun issue, a quiet issue, and it's one that we discussed on the treadmill uh, not too terribly long ago. Uh, you could hear that one in the archives as well. Now, one of the things that J.F. mentions here is that uh, DC was uh, money-hungry by publishing two Teen Titans titles concurrently. Uh, and it seems like this was a common uh, take on the situation between the, you know, the hardcover, softcover books, the Baxter and the newsstand, and then repurposing the uh, Baxter in the newsstand uh, a year later. It's... Pretty, pretty strange times. I, I wasn't around for it when it happened, and I'm not quite sure how I would have accepted it. I know just in digging uh, and filling in holes in my Titans collection and my Outsiders collection, it it always does seem a bit weird to uh, buy the same issue twice just in the, uh, in the name of completionism. But uh, that's kind of what I do. Now, I ain't blowing any minds here, but... Uh, the, they would run a year's worth of stories in the uh, the Baxter direct market uh, series of the uh, of the hardcover softcover books, and then a year later they would rerun those same stories for the newsstand crowd, folks who can't get to a uh, comic shop or rabid completionists like myself. Who knows? Uh, <laughs> but it does seem like a very strange thing. It, it was a very experimental time, though. The market was uh, still very young uh, insofar as the direct market. So they were probably just, uh, I don't know if it's, you know, having their cake, eating it too, or just uh, trying to make sure that nobody's left out. Um, either way, it's uh, long behind us now, but it is interesting to see how folks were uh, regarding this move uh, back in, you know, ye old 1985. All right, that's going to wrap us up. Uh, but before we go, I did want to share a little bit of feedback that I've been getting. Uh, I, I don't know why I've never shared feedback before. I probably should. Uh, I, I do get a lot of very nice messages after uh, posting an episode. Uh, we're going to start with one from Sean Ross from uh, the Secret Wars and Beyond and Squadron Supreme podcast. He'll uh, He's going to be guesting on this show probably in the next uh, month or two. He says, uh, this is regarding uh, the Paragon issue of Justice League. He says, this is one of my favorite issues of the JLA and my first comic from Kurt Busiek. He goes on to say, excellent episode. I loved your story about your early con experiences. Also, I can't believe you got Chachi to interview Kurt Busiek. I knew it wasn't just me who thought that sounded like Scott Bayo, Or maybe I always sound like Scott Bayo. I'm not sure. But uh, thank you, Sean. Uh, the, uh, those are my early and late <laughs> Comic-Con experiences, because uh, I don't know that I'll ever be going back to one. <laughs> I think I'm past that stage. Uh, we got one from uh, a comment from Mark Yeager, a good friend of the show and the site. He says, "You have an amazing memory, which leads itself, which lends itself to these stories, because it paints the picture so well that I feel like I'm there." And uh, I replied to that with a very sincere thank you, because I think that I kind of straddle that line between giving just enough information and way, 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 way too much information to where uh, folks, you know, might just tune me out. I. You know, halfway through these shows, I generally tune myself out. So thank you, Mark. Uh, comment from Chris from uh, Bat Books for Beginners and the Professor Frenzy Show. He says, great Comic-Con stories, Chris. I enjoy your recollections. 
I think there used to be mall, some mall shows in the Detroit area back in the day, but never at a place where I lived. And uh, last week I did talk about going to mall cons, which are basically a collection of local vendors peddling their wares in the middle of a mall. So those were my very first, you know, quote-unquote comic conventions that didn't have anything to do with, you know, uh, celebrities, movies, and Funko Pops. So this is a uh, this was the uh, kind of what set the bar for me in, in as far as what a comic convention should be. And I think, unfortunately, it kind of spoiled me for what was to come because uh, the stuff we have going on now is nothing like <laughs> the old the tiny little mall cons, which were just featured just so much more comic substance. I uh, got a message from Green Lantern HG, another great friend of the show. It says, what a great episode. Love those stories, man. I get what you say about crowding. The last convention I went to, there was a half-hour line just across the street. And, uh, yeah, that's part of the reason why it is so hard for me to commit one way or another to ever going to another convention. Just the crowds are insane. Um, you know, just on top of on top of there just not being enough for me at these shows... Just the fact that the the crowds are just so insane is just uh, all the deterrent I need. Um, I actually stopped at a at a fifty cent bin over this weekend. My wife had uh, some business to attend to across town, and I gave her a ride and uh, figured I'd kill a little bit of time by hitting a fifty cent bin. And little did I know that that shop was having like their Christmas in July sale. So I get there expecting there to be nobody and. There were like 25, 30 people in this tiny store. It was just, it's like, oh man, if I'd have picked any other day, <laughs> I'd have been fine. But uh, yeah, the crowds just really do me in. I don't know. I, I, I'm sure that's just a common thing with folks, but uh, yeah, it just that was enough for me. Uh, Green Lantern HG follows up with, uh, he mentions the guy at the letters column who uh, tells DC how to do their job. That was letter writer Matthew, who uh, basically told DC that. The, the Justice League they were putting out was garbage, and he could do so much better. It's a very interesting thing, and he does a little roll-eye emoji here, so it's funny stuff. Got a uh, a missive from Charlton Hero, our good friend Chris Bailey, who's been on the show a few times and will be on the show again soon. He says, man, I just finished that last Chris's on Infinite Earth show. It may have been your best. I loved it. Even the DC and the 80s stuff. All great stuff. Uh, Scott Bayo interviewing Busick was great too. So yeah, there's another another vote for the, in the Chachi column, um, and I gotta say, uh, a hero here. He did reach out to Justin at DC in the '80s and uh, suggested he check out the show, and that's what helped he and I uh, start talking again, or, or at least broke the ice. So uh, a very big thanks to uh, to Hero there. He's a he's a heck of a pal, and I uh, really appreciate everything he's done, and uh, I, I certainly appreciate his uh, his very kind words about the episode. Uh, the, follow, the final uh, piece here is from Jeremiah, another great friend of the show who will uh, be on the show uh, in the next couple of uh, couple of weeks, couple of months, uh, eventually. <laughs> We're still trying to figure out what book he'd like to discuss. He, uh, he's talking about an episode from a few weeks ago. He says, I was just watching the match game, and one of the contestants was from Scottsdale, Arizona, and all I could think was, I wonder if she's a snob. Now, that's in reference to a job I had... I was doing on the road where I, it took me into Scottsdale, Arizona, and I met a very unpleasant woman. And I did mention that there is a little bit of a stereotype about certain folks in, in Scottsdale. So uh, <laughs> I think that's fantastic that uh, anytime you hear Scottsdale from this point on, he's going to be reminded of a poor idiot getting, a, getting a, a five pounds of keys chucked at his chest. So there's that. Uh, I think uh, I think this is about all of your day that I'll take up for uh, for this week anyway. Um, I want to thank you all for joining me. If you stuck around this long, uh, thank you even more so. Uh, I do want to uh, say that anything I said about collecting and collect commandments that is uh, you know just all my personal rules of thumb. So if uh, you have a different philosophy, feel free to share it with me. Um, but I mean, don't don't take that as me, you know, being condescending or putting down or putting myself above uh, your level of passion or anything. It's, we all do things different. We all have our best practices. We all, we, we all expect different things from the hobby. So don't take anything per- that I said personally. Don't even take it seriously. It's just, you know, one idiot talking into a microphone. Um, now, you can get a hold of us at weirdcomicshistory@gmail.com. 
you can find us, you know, on all those places that have noise. Uh, we have the website, that is chrisandreggie.com, where you'll be able to find the archives in chronological order. If you want to he- see the site that this show is named after, head on over to chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. And while you're there, if you see anything you'd like to hear me talk about, let me know and I'll throw it on the list. Also, while you're there, if you see anything you'd like to come on and talk about, let me know and uh, we will see what we can set up. Uh, thank you again so, so much for listening. Had a good time visiting with you. So long for now. See ya. See ya.